Hey, Kindred, welcome to church. Um, yeah, we had to do this about a year ago, too. It's so crazy when these storms come in, and it's kind of hard to tell what we got, but we do think it's the right thing to do to be safe tonight. And so uh, I'm sure, you, as you heard in the host spot a little bit, uh, we got a bunch of stuff coming up that we're excited about. Uh, we hate not being with you. You can see out this window that the driving snow up here in the uh, metropolis of Dakota is it's flying uh, like white out on the way up here. We just don't know what's going to happen. So we're being safe and hopefully smart with it. But we do miss you guys and can't wait to see you next week. Uh, we are in week three of our Exodus study. So if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've already seen murder and malice and power struggles. And tonight, we're getting more murder. It's going to be more murder. It's, uh, it's, it's one of those kind of stories tonight. This book of the Bible is exciting. I, like, I, like if you've been reading along at all, uh, I think you'll find that, that there's all kinds of stuff in here that's just kind of, kind of blows me away as I, as I read it and study it and see it. Um, I know that true crime is a super popular thing. Like I listen to a couple podcasts that are true crime. Uh, I'm listening to one right now. Uh, and it's where the, you know, these things where the, the hosts speculate on motives and, and try to figure out what really happened in these crimes and did the right person get arrested. And then they have like 15 minutes of commercials trying to sell you everything under the sun. You're like hitting forward 30 seconds 100 times. Back 15, you finally get to the right point. But I, I love that stuff too. Um, I got really obsessed with Serial years ago. If you listen to that, it's back in the news again. These stories, they stick with us because they're this like kind of mix of unbelievable tales and actually, there's kind of sobering what ifs of the fact that it's it's real life. Like this stuff actually happened. Uh, this stuff happened around us. Some of the some of the stuff happened right here in Colorado, and it's just kind of crazy to think about. Sometimes it's hard to remember that it's real people. It's real life, and I think that honestly, Exodus kind of reminds me of this same kind of thing. Uh, a lot of the Bible does, where we we go, this stuff really happened. This stuff really is true, and so we get a story tonight with that same kind of intrigue. Like this is real. And that's been kind of a theme of Exodus so far for us, too. It all needs to be contextualized into real life to realize that it is real. So let's do that a little bit. We left Moses last week uh, as he's turned over to the daughter of the Pharaoh who had uh, fished him out of reeds like these <laughs> uh, at one point. His mom raises him for the first uh, couple years of his life. We're not sure exactly how many. And then they turn him back over to the daughter of the Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt, uh, and now she's going to become his adoptive mother uh, uh, going forward. That the Hebrew people are enslaved in Egypt in this brutal system that's dehumanizing, is agonizing. And Moses sits in the palace with the oppressors of his people, while his own people, his own literal family even, suffer under this rule. And as Exodus unfolds, Moses is very aware, very aware of this dichotomy and what's going on around him. We're given this familiar biblical device here as, as we read Exodus where a large amount of time passes with very little detail given. So that, that verse uh, in 2.10, we find out that his name is Moses. And in and 2.11, right away, the entire scene shifts and we're left this massive gap of time in the life of Moses. We, we see this too uh, in the New Testament with the story of Jesus is the best example, right? Where we get the Christmas story and three of the four gospels and, and then boom, Jesus is 30, right? And so that's something that was used in these times as a biography device because most people didn't care about the details of a child. So here's how the Moses example goes. It says this, One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and he watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Notice that again a couple times in there, his own people, it says, 
The scholars say somewhere between 36 and 40 years passed between 210 and 211. And so Moses has spent, you know, the better part of four decades in, in the palace of the Pharaoh, raised in luxury. But this verse immediately draws out that he feels tied. He feels a kinship. He feels something deep inside of him for his own people. For, for He sees this overseer beating the slaves, and we're told that, that he, he sees one of his own people, which literally could be read as his brother. So Moses, who most scholars agree wrote Exodus, not all, but most, he wanted us to know right away that he felt this act that he witnessed, he, he felt it deep in his gut. It, it bothered him. It, it woke something up in him. So whatever guilt might be a part of this, uh, we can only kind of guess on, we can conjecture with, but it, what kind of judgment he's been living under from the other, you know, the other Hebrews with stares and glances at this enslaved population that sees him in the palace, it all kind of comes to a point here. I don't know how many of you are on kind of the, the fight side of the whole fight or flight continuum. Uh, I'm usually on the flight side unless something really gets to me. Uh, some injustice is too overwhelming, and then I lose it completely. And Moses could have been either. He could have been like this, or maybe he always just goes for it. But we see here uh, in the next sentence that it says this, looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Right? Podcasters everywhere getting excited about this because this is a moment where Moses just goes for it. And any way you slice it, it's an extreme reaction. Uh, one that's like no doubt aided by a backstory of pain, uh, a backstory of wondering how he could possibly live in a palace while he watched his fellow people suffer, uh, a backstory where he feels like an outsider around the Egyptians all the time and also feels like an outsider around the Hebrews, his own people. So just kind of picture that kind of divide living out every day. Moses has nowhere to turn. He, he's nobody's people. But in any case, we do see him lash out. And the scene sees that, that likely he probably had to go follow this overseer. He didn't just kill him right there where he, where he sees him beating this, this slave. He had to probably follow him, maybe even stalk him to a place where nobody could see him, where nobody could see what he was about to do. And we know that it wasn't a spur-of-the-moment reaction based just off of the Hebrew words that are used in this passage. But instead, we, we have a, a carefully planned attack by Moses. Now, the Ten Commandments are coming later in, in this Exodus story. We got 40 chapters of excitement going our way. Is uh, The Ten Commandments are in chapter 20. So like, we got some time before we get there. So this thou shalt not kill idea and ethic is not around yet. But we do know from Genesis, and if you're with us when we study Genesis, uh, that the story of Cain and Abel shows us that the morality uh, of killing, the, the lack of morality in killing, has been obvious and told to the, uh, to the people of God all the way back, right? So Moses is aware that, he do, that he's done wrong, and otherwise he wouldn't hide the body if he didn't feel that way. So we see all of that detail in there, but we don't get all that detail in the words, right? We just get the information. And, and that, I honestly, I, I think that's like life sometimes. We get hurt by people and we have a feeling about someone and, and things along those lines, but maybe we never really find out all the answers. There's a lot of things I would like to know the answers to at the end of life. We might never know. But we sometimes will wonder these things and, and the intrigue and the mystery, it makes things less than satisfying modes to live in. And I think that Moses has some of this as well. And this is a good time in this Exodus study, I think, to talk about uh, one of the things that we, that we have to know about, about Exodus. 
So tradition, like I said, it holds that Moses wrote this book. Now, you may find a few issues with this as we go along. And you may see why some scholars think it's not the case. But here's what I have to say about it. And it wouldn't be really cool right now if I tell you that I went on a trip and I went Indiana Jones style. I found some caves. I found some documents. I ran away from a giant rolling rock. And when I jumped out at the end, defeating snakes and other you know, assorted enemies, I found out that Moses really did write it and I had proof for you. That's what I was about to tell you. But that's not what's about to happen. We are never going to know that mystery. We're never going to rewrite history, right? But it does play into how we read it when we really start to think about what the, the author's motivation was, where these things come from, what exactly is being pieced together. So here's what I want to do for tonight, especially. Um, this section is laid out very matter-of-factly, but it's leading to a point. And so Moses, uh, and for the, the, the purpose of this, let's just go with tradition and say Moses wrote this. It's giving quick-hitting information that paints a picture of the kind of person he wants us to know he is. So first, this episode is showing that despite his upbringing in the palace of the Pharaoh, despite the fact that he was raised in luxury, Moses wants the Hebrew people to know that he's one of them, that he's with them, that he will go to any extreme to help them. He's choosing loyalty over his royalty, and that's the thing that he wants them to see, right? And the killing of the Egyptian overseer, it lasts just these two verses. And without even a paragraph break, he moves to his next proof of this loyalty over his royalty in verse 13. It says this, The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. It's a little playground-y. There's some stuff in there. Who's made you the boss of me kind of stuff going on here. But this is serving multiple purposes for the sake of of the narrative of the story. First, Moses is making peace among the Hebrew people while standing against their oppressors. And it's more clout. But second, we see in the man's response to him that this revelation of some bitterness towards Moses, which is likely the thing he's trying to counteract in all of this to start with. So we see these dynamics in play, highlighting that the story is complicated, that the relationships are strained, but it also sets up the next part of of Moses' story here in Exodus. Here's how. Uh, Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. So here we go. It's just quick hitting facts and stories being pieced together. Moses is a fugitive. The king, the pharaoh, he wants him dead, and so he takes off. And if you remember our study of Genesis, uh, or if you're familiar with Genesis at all, we see a familiar setting come into place right at the end of this. Of all the details we actually get, we're told, we're told that Moses takes off to a well. All right? Wells in the Old Testament are like happy hour at Chili's, right? You're going to show up, you're going to have a good time, you're going to meet your spouse. That If you see a well in the story, that's what's going on. Uh, I can't explain it, but it's true. Moses, the bad boy fugitive, he lands at a well, and it's the progression of this section that falls right into line here. So he showed his loyalty again to his people in killing the overseer. Another day, you know, he, like another, another moment for him. And then he demonstrates some leadership potential in breaking up this fight. So then, after those two things happen, he lands in this territory called Midian, and it's full of the people known as as Moabites. And again, I'm going back to Genesis uh, one more time here. These are the descendants of Lot and his son Moab. And Lot was the the man that split away from Abraham, uh, his brother-in-law, 
And the only thing that they have in common with the Hebrew people at this point is that the Egyptians are horrible to both of them. That they're enemies with the Egyptians. Sometimes, honestly, a common enemy is all you need to, to be connected to somebody, right? Like if you're watching a, a football game between two teams that you can't stand, there's one that you pull for, right? Been to a couple Broncos and Chiefs games. It's an easy choice for me to know who to root for. I'll let you guess who. Listen to the story of the well again. It's a simple one. Now, a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to, to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? And they answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Rule asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Right? Moses here is intervening again. He, he's rescuing again. He's building up his resume. That is the, the point of this chapter two story. And we don't get, again, the full details of the struggle with the shepherds, but we know that Moses prevails and that he finds favor with his family because of it. But probably the most important thing to note before we see how much favor he actually has earned is that this father rule uh, is the priest. He's the priest of some undescribed religion of the Moabite people. Right? Moses has landed in a situation that therefore, like honestly, is very interesting for our study. In the next line of the narrative, we find this out. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to, to Moses in marriage. And Moses marries into this family that runs a religion that he would know nothing of. That, that you know, Moses is still to, yet to meet face-to-face the God of his people, and there's some conjecture on this. He probably knows uh, about the God of his people, but he hasn't met this creator of the universe face-to-face yet. So, but we, we have to wonder this. Depending on the amount of contact with his birth family over the years, what does he know about the God of Abraham? But now he's marrying into this priestly family of something completely foreign to him. It doesn't even seem to come into play as a detail worth talking about yet, but it will. But he, he's adding to the complexity of who he is. He's a Hebrew by birth, He's, he's raised in the oppressor Egyptian's palace. He's seen as Egyptian, though, by these daughters. They, they recognize him as Egyptian, so he's clearly dressed like one. He it honestly probably has a, like a specific haircut to go with it, like King Tut haircut, Jim Carrey's pumpkin pie haircut from Dumb and Dumber, just picture that. He's an outlaw with no safe place to turn. And now he's married to the member of another enemy, uh, of not just the Israelites, but the Egyptians, who practiced a religion that would have made no sense to him. This is how complex Moses' life is turning out. He's complicated enough to become like a U.S. congressman at this point, right? This dude, God, he has it all. He recognizes this as he and his new wife, let's call her Zipper, because that's a great nickname. They welcome a child in the very next verse. Talk about leaving out some details, right? Time flies when you're hiding from murder charges. Verse 22, Zipporah, Zipper, gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom saying, I've become a foreigner in a foreign land. Moses captures something here that I find fascinating. He grew up as a foreigner in a foreign land, super literally, right, in Egypt. And now even to this point, if we really think about the implications of what's written here, Moses would have been the only Hebrew man in his generation. You ever think about that? So all these babies, all the male babies are being killed, thrown into the Nile River. Moses would have looked around, and seen very few people who were like him or looked like him. So he'd looked out for these 40 years on the people that he looked like, and he knew 
I'm the only one here. That had to mess with him. He had to think about that a lot. He probably knew the story, right? But now as he names his child after the place he's found himself here in Midian, we know that he, we know that he really does feel it. A tradition says he's in Midian another 40 years. And listen, whether these two periods are literal 40 years each, or 40 is just a number that holds significance that's meant to depict an era, uh, that, again, that's debated. But I know church people well enough to know this. Somebody is very passionate about both of those opinions and will get mad at me. So let's just say I have no dog in this fight. This, this is the argument. It's going to distract from the point of the story. These time periods would tell the original listeners something that is really important, and it's this. Moses had time to grow and to change. And so he entered into this new era of his life. They call it 40 years. He's a different person, right? We do know that this part of Moses' life in the foreign land of Midian is roughly the same amount of time that he spent in the palace in Egypt. And we know that because of what happens next. It says, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. I know Moses is, is narrating the next move in his life. This passage, it talks about groaning out and crying out to God in four different words. They, they repeat the words in English, but it's four different ways that the people are crying out to God. A lot's going on here. So the Pharaoh dies, right? And this is telling us that the path is now open for Moses to return to Egypt. The one that wants you dead is gone. You're safe. And next this, his people his brothers and sisters, as the Hebrew word denotes back at the beginning of this, are fed up with being under the system of slavery that's kept them down. So the line we get again is this. It says the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. It's loaded with meaning. God isn't unaware of the suffering. It's not like this just became, uh, you know, on his radar at this moment. He's not indifferent to it either. He's not indifferent to their suffering. He's not indifferent to yours. But instead, God created a world where we are the plan, right? Where we are the ones that are the body that moves to make a difference. That's illustrated really clearly in the New Testament, this idea that the believers of Jesus are like a body. But it's also true when you think about the way that free will and bad people and sin combine to make this world really awful. So what this passage is telling us is this, the Israelites finally and collectively together, they got to a point where what they wanted was to do something about it and they asked God for help. So together, because he's with them and because he has this covenant agreement with their, their ancestors, the, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the time has come now for action. Right? The English translation here is that God remembered, and it's really misleading because God doesn't forget. Right? So follow this with me. God didn't forget that he made promises. Instead, the Israelites, uh, the, a better way to say this is they activated this promise because they are finally ready on their end. And time isn't the same to God. God's patient in ways that we can only begin to understand. So the Hebrew word translated as remembered is this word zakar. Right? And so we, the Zakar is where we get this wonderful name, Zachary, if you've ever heard that name. It's a great name. It's, it's the idea that God's promises will be applied to those that he's promised them to, even when we can't see it or feel it or understand it. Zakar. 
The teaching from Exodus here then is powerful. The Israelites needed to unite and spring into action to have the promises, the zakar, activated. In the same vein, like the hope that had to exist that once Pharaoh dies, things would be different was distinguished when nothing changed after his death. So this slavery continued. A new Pharaoh took over. We here, we're about to enter into another round of this election cycle, and I'm not going to talk about it a lot. But with it is this false hope that we get a lot of times that, man, if this something, if this candidate wins, if this thing changes, then everything's going to be okay. But the truth we're getting from this ancient book, Exodus, is that the only thing that ever actually changes is when we pursue the promises of our Creator. Everything else is going to let us down. So honestly, you and I, we're extremely lucky in this part of this. What a time for us to be alive, right? We have indoor plumbing, Right? We, have, we have apps and meetups and friends instead of having to go down to the, the Chili's happy hour to meet our, our future spouse. But even more than all this, we live in a covenant that is even greater. It's even greater than the one that Israelites lived under. We live in the new covenant. that The death and resurrection of Jesus has sealed to us our eternity, our fate. That's the agreement that awaits us when we have our awakening, our zakar, when we activate his promises. So here's what that means. Because Jesus took on the sin and death of all people for all time, right? Because of his death and resurrection, the invitation that awaits us is simply to live into it, to awake to it, to let it be activated, to allow it to be what washes over us, motivates us, and pushes us towards loving other people well. Uh, We have it really easy in that regard because it just requires our acceptance of it. But I think this, and I know for me and I think for all of us, we forget it, right? That the zakar is sitting right there. And, and just like in the times of Moses, what it offers is the chance for the body of Jesus, all of us, to be unified in the things that actually matter, which is love and direction from Jesus that activates the promise that he has for us to be life in place of our death. And it's not that other things don't matter. It's not that politics aren't important. It's, I don't mean to imply any of that kind of things. It's not that living in a healthy way isn't good. All these things matter, but they aren't the point. The point is that just as we're about to see here in Exodus, a movement of physically setting out to a new place that offers the freedom of spirit, of mind, of bodies that they've always dreamed of in their times and that we dream of now. And for us today, the new exodus of our time is waiting for this zakar moment, that, that you haven't been forgotten, that God remembers, that your time is coming, that is activated. And it's, it's, the, it's an individual choice. It's one that you have to make for yourself to allow Jesus and this new covenant to free you from the mindsets, the traps, the false religious programming that maybe we have in us that we've allowed to take us away from this pure love of Jesus instead to be led to real freedom when we find out who Jesus really is, what the Holy Spirit offers us, how it guides us and directs us, and how the Holy Spirit can unify us under this idea that we want to take as many people on this path of freedom with us as God, Zakar, God remembers, God leads us to something brand new. Kendra, let's pray together. God, I'm so thankful as we go through this Exodus study and we see these big moments, these, maybe these stories we know a little bit, these stories that we know a lot. God, but these big moments where we're reminded that you are right here with us. God, that you don't forget your people. 
God, that you're not uh, watching us suffer and, and having some kind of cosmic laugh on our behalf, but God, instead, that you have waited for a moment. And God, for us today, you've been waiting for this moment. We allow Jesus to be the thing that really does animate us and push us forward and lead us into the best parts of life. God, this idea that this zakar, this remembrance, this activation of everything that you promised us sits there waiting for us. I pray tonight that maybe for the first time or the, the hundredth time or whatever that might look like, that we would allow it to be activated. God, that we allow to help us rise above all the circumstances that we have, good or bad, the things that we think are hopeless. God, the things that, that we're waiting for victory in. God, that we would, instead of growing weary, be uh, just completely motivated by the fact that we know that you have good things ahead for us, that you remember us, that you are with us. We thank you and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.